2: in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Hippin' Hops in East Atlanta was the first African-American-owned brick-and-mortar brewery in Georgia. They opened in the summer of 2021 and have since added a location in Eastlake and now A third location is coming to Stone Mountain. Later this hour, we'll hear from the owner, Clarence Boston. Plus, Anne Barry explores the emotional depth of primates in her photography book, Behind Glass. First, in the two and a half years since the COVID-19 pandemic began, Over 6 billion people across the globe have lost their lives to the deadly disease, and millions are still living with the long-term effects after contracting it. Fortunately, vaccine and booster rollouts have resulted in fewer deaths and milder cases, though the threat of COVID-19 remains. To continue building confidence in vaccines, Out of Hand Theater created a project, The Time Has Chosen Us. One of the films addressing vaccine hesitancy is Comfort by Amina S. McIntyre. She joins us now via Zoom. Amina, welcome back to City Life. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, Lois. Thrilled to have you. Now, before we get into your film, what can you tell us about Out of Hand Theater's project? The time has chosen us.
1: So in the fall, Out of Hand decided to apply for a grant through the Center for Disease Control. They were giving out grants to... Um, arts organizations that could possibly assist with encouraging and considering vaccination possibilities and just encouraging people to really take the vaccine seriously around COVID-19. Out of Hand and Dad's Garage actually both were two of the companies that received the grant. And so they hired uh, Thomas Brazel to be the project manager who also directed the film, as well as Marcel Foster to do some research. And we partnered with Emory University as well um, and the Rollins School of Public Health in order to have a conversation and to make sure that we had some accuracy around the work that we were doing. And so it's been lovely because The project is kind of a subsidiary of what the work that or a kind of more of a contract project of the work that Out of Hand is doing. So we ran our kind of our own interviews and everything as a part of the work that they have us do. And so that's been actually really exciting to see it kind of come to fruition.
2: Yeah. Your film is titled Comfort. How did you come up with the narrative for your screenplay?
1: Yeah. So as a part of the larger project, um, what we did was we interviewed, I got a chance to be, be in as a part of about eight to 10 interviews. I know they've done some other interviews past that, but we sat down and we talked to some persons in sort of the hotbed areas where um, COVID-19 really kind of ravaged. So we talked to some people in South Georgia, especially Albany area. We talked to some people in Tifton. We talked to just had interviews even as far over as Birmingham. And what we did was we just sat down and we asked people about their experience, not just having contracted disease, but also how it impacted their community. And some of the stories that we received were Both heartbreaking and heartwarming in a lot of different ways. Um, There were stories, for example, of interviews of people who had lost like up to eight to 10 people in like two weeks and talking about their families or even their own residual impact and how COVID has impacted themselves, for example, lingering brain fog. um, And also, too, just conversations around how the community has started to react And so, using that source material, I decided that it would be great to have a conversation around a family being not necessarily all being for the vaccine because I wanted it to be a mix of uh, it's like Grey's Anatomy meets Blackish I think is kind of where we're going with it (laughs) because we wanted it to be so we wanted it to be more than a PSA so we didn't want it to just be like go become a vaccine we wanted to say no in those interviews it came up that everyone um, especially African-American families had some genuine concerns around the vaccine especially related back to Tuskegee experiments etc um, and so we wanted to really portray this particular family. And so the family's last name is Comfort. And so the title became Comfort, as in uh, just kind of particularly chronicling this family and their experiences around
2: COVID. I'm curious about the COVID-related concerns or barriers you encountered in those community focused groups from interviewees. What more can you tell us about the hesitancy, the, the distrust that many people m- may have felt, may continue to feel because of history? You mentioned the Tuskegee experiments. That was horrific. Absolutely.
1: What has been amazing is that in every interview, several things showed up. The Tuskegee experiment came about. Some people mentioned the concern around not knowing the long-term impact or effects. Um, So some people just really wanted to know what it was because the vaccine was so new and seemed to be fast-tracked so quickly. Some people also, in the places that we spoke, to, they weren't in situations where they weren't adjacent to the virus. These were all places where the virus really raged. And so it wasn't as if they didn't know someone who had it or if they didn't have it themselves. So for some people it was, oh, well I had it and it wasn't that bad when I had it. For others, it was also just, even though I've had it and I've seen it, I just don't fully trust What's going to happen next, and we just don't have enough information. Um, And so, and and even lastly, there were some people who were like, "Well, if all of my family has it and I have it, then I don't need to get it." And so, there was just a lot of different conversations around: Is this actually necessary? Are we moving too fast? Is this something that in about ten or fifteen years we're going to find out the Mm -hmm. vaccine? wasn't just tested properly on this part or the study. And quite honestly, some of those things could still come about. I think that's also just kind of part of how science works and, and the way that we tinker and the work of boosters and things of that nature. But One of the biggest things, and I think is that the reason that I think more people are starting to have the conversation around the vaccine is because some families are absolutely requiring it. And so there's conversations in families around, hey, look, you know, we want to gather, but we really need people. If you're not going to get vaccinated, I need you to test or I need to have these conversations because it is so important for us to not have the same kind of losses that we had prior to as a result of us being in contact with um, of with COVID nineteen and just the impact that it's had before.
2: I love your description of Gray's Anatomy meets Blackish. The film does not mention the Tuskegee experiment. Would you give us a synopsis of Comfort? Yes, absolutely.
1: So Atiyah, who is one of the daughters of the Comfort family and who currently takes care of her father, is hoping to get the family back together for Family Fun Day. And this is the first Family Fun Day that they've had since the pandemic started. And it just navigates this particular day of games and the persons who in the family were invited, who weren't invited around the vaccine itself and all of the secrets and the conversations that come up with a family that comes back together after having been apart for a couple of years.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is playwright Amina S. McIntyre. We've been discussing her new short film, Comfort. In what ways does the film illustrate how people responded differently to COVID-19?
1: Absolutely. So in the film, it focuses on three siblings, Tia, Tanisha, and Thomas. Jesse is the father. But Tia is the sibling, kind of the youngest sibling, who stayed with her father um, even after their mother passed away. Tanisha decided to leave the area because she had the means to do so. So, as soon as COVID came about, she was like, Well, I have the wealth to do so. So, she moved to another city to keep her part of the family safe. Their brother, Thomas, is a doctor who works in one of the hospitals at the time. Um, And so, he's in contact with COVID on a regular basis. And then we also have uh, Tia's son, Cameron. We also have Tanisha's daughter, Kelsey, who was a college student. And the the idea is that Tia is very adamant about the fact that we lost our mom. We lost all of these other members of our family. So nobody can come in because I'm still taking care of our father who's on oxygen. Um, And so she's one of those persons who, after COVID, is very tight-lipped about who can come in and really wants to kind of control the environment. Thomas, who is A doctor who sees things all the time is in a position where he is a little bit more relaxed about how things kind of go about in terms of how you care for people and how you not judge people in terms of the vaccine itself. Tanisha is someone who is willing to be a part of family, willing to do the work, but is also aware of the fact that if she can kind of get out of in a particular environment, then she will. And how these kinds of things kind of come about in terms of the COVID conversation is that these are actual decisions that a lot of people really did make when this came about. And everybody has an idea for how people have handled Responding to COVID when it came about and how people have then responded to the vaccine and the spectrums, especially whether um, not only across uh, racial lines, but also economic lines and how these particular variations happen within the family. One of the biggest conflict comes in between Tia and Cameron, her son, because Tia is very adamant about getting the vaccine, and Cameron is very hesitant around the vaccine for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned before, which also has meant that in those two or three years, they actually haven't seen each other. And so having those particular conversations around, yes, I know that this one particular decision impacts our family, but is there a way that we can still be a family around a particular issue or around a political issue. And I think it kind of brings up just how families really operate because issues do divide families and secrets do divide families. And I really wanted to make sure That even though the vaccine and everyone's vaccination status was a secret or everyone's ideas politically or just personally around the vaccine were important. But I always wanted to make sure to emphasize the importance of family and families having their conversations within this place. Because a lot of times we get so divided about issues and we forget about the fact that families and communities at the end of the day are what are most needed for us to make it through any particular
2: situation. Mm. According to the CDC, since the vaccine rollout, Black and Hispanic people have been less likely to receive a vaccine than their white counterparts. But the disparities have narrowed over time and even reversed for Hispanic people. Why was it important to you to highlight a Black family in this film?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it was important for me for a number of reasons. I'm a Black woman, and for me, always telling Black Southern stories and Black Southern reactions to things are very important because very often we might get a Black family, but they're very often not from a Southern region. And so for me, it was important to write about a kind of a family that I felt like had a certain significant cultural element to them, but also saying this is the voice that I can really write mostly from. That's not to say that these conversations don't happen in other places and that it cannot be a universal story. But for me, the best way I could write the truth around it was to say, let's focus on especially a black family. And even though, like, for example, in places like Albany and and Tipton, it was across racial boundaries there are families that still do have this particular conversation coming up and that particular friction around the historical nature of vaccines is something that I feel like is very culturally specific to us and I felt like it's something that just kind of needed to come back up Um, but for me it's just like it's just kind of where I write around and I do know too I believe that out of hand is looking to also get stories from other demographics as well in order to have this particular conversation and I believe they're also going to be kind of bring in some other writers too, to make sure that all of those voices are there. But all in all, for me, understanding, especially how members of my own family have felt, how our gatherings have had to go, and watching things happen. And also, I work part-time as a chaplain, so also watching it from a a healthcare perspective as well has been very important to see the, especially with the numbers of persons who are coming up and the numbers of people and the demographics. It just was very important for me to write the story that I knew I could write the best and probably could get the most out of in this case.
2: Mm. The 30-minute film is offered for free on the Time Has Chosen Us website. I mean, in what type of settings or events would Out of Hand stream this film?
1: So we actually had our premiere at the Midtown Theater, which actually premieres a lot of uh, smaller independent films. But we have it going up sometimes in festivals. It can be done in schools. It can be done in your living room. Of course, Out of Hand specializes in bringing Plays to living rooms and to making them very accessible. It can even be viewed in the comfort of your own home. So, even if you have a family and you just want to have a conversation about it, part of it being a free resource and making it so that it is readily available on Vimeo is so that it really can be streamed anywhere, either as a special event or just in the comfort of your own home as a part of just your own Netflix watching, (laughs) as we like to say, uh, since we know that that has been on a rise since the
2: pandemic started. Playwright. Amina S. McIntyre. Her film, Comfort, is streaming now. You can find more information about the film and Out of Hand theaters project, The Time Has Chosen Us, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, oysters and crafts. Are coming to Stone Mountain courtesy of Georgia's first African American owned brick and mortar brewery. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. When Hip Hops opened in East Atlanta in the summer of 2021, they earned the distinction of being the first African American owned brick and mortar brewery in Georgia. Since then, They have added a location in Eastlake, and now a third brewery is coming to Stone Mountain. Last year, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelly Knavey sat down with the owner, Clarence Boston, and filed this audio postcard.
3: Oysters and craft beer. Sounds like a winning if unorthodox, combination, if you ask me. And that's what Clarence Boston thought when he came up with the concept for his new restaurant, Hip & Hops. The mortician-turned-brewmaster and his wife opened Hip & Hops in the former Eastlake Pharmacy space in East Atlanta Village. I recently sat down with him there to talk about his new business and about his former work.
4: I I own um, four funeral homes, and the... Fifth one was going to be uh, Stone Mine, which we actually turned that into a uh, production brewery now.
3: Oh wow, cool! It's, so
4: we said we're kind of like tired of dead people, and you know we really enjoy making beer and <laughs> socializing and all that good stuff.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, did the uh, skills transfer?
4: I <laughs> oh, we just got burnt yeah, out, like yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, you know what's the worst thing happen if you know somebody doesn't want their beer? Hey, you give them another one.
3: Just making everybody happy with your beers and oysters so how did you come up with that concept of pairing beer and oysters
4: well we own a uh, oyster lease out of stump sound that we lease out to a, another oyster farmer that was our retirement plan we were just gonna open this big old oyster farm and just you know farm oysters and it was that and then i, I wanted to open a winery so i said well i turned 45 I was gonna buy the land and then we'll plant my grapes and then turn 50 we'd we'll be ready to rock and roll but uh you know we own a couple of other restaurants so it's just like we really enjoy that business and you know the quality of life is very important to us at this point in life mm-hmm. because hey you know we're in our 40s and you know this our last good years where we can really get around and good and travel and you know we wanted to do something we really enjoy doing so that's that's Pretty much where the concept came from.
3: Yeah, and your wife does the cooking, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, she yeah, she is. Uh, her, and then we have another chef, Snow. She's from New Orleans as well. Well, my wife's from Baton Rouge, and uh... I'm from Baton Rouge! Are you really? I am! Did you really?
3: <laughs> I saw the menu, it's very Southern. I mean, we are still in the South, but right, you know, right, right. South Louisiana is a whole different thing. Well, it's not
4: a seafood restaurant really around here. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoy oysters and, you know, my, my kids do. I know it's not about what I enjoy, but I, I you know, just... <laughs> it makes
3: it more fun. Right, yeah, <laughs> but there's
4: not a lot of places that, you know, to go for good oysters around here. You know? Yeah. So we just decided to make it happen.
3: I asked Clarence what it's been like being in business with his wife all these years.
4: Generally, me and my wife, we, we don't work together that great. So it's like, uh, we try to just stay out of each other's space. Like she don't come back here and I don't really go back there unless they, they're really bad. Uh, but she's uh, doing a great job. You know, the recipes, uh, you know they, they're coming up. They just did a new one called The Boss, which is a, uh, it's, it's a oyster, it's a three cheese oyster and then it's topped with a Cajun shrimp. And they have been selling like, cause I'm I'm like, you know, I've always ran the restaurants and she's always ran the funeral homes. And I'm like, no, menu control. We don't need nothing else on this menu. It's going to make the food take longer to get out here. No, so I went out of town Uh uh, (laughs) where I went to LA last week and uh, to look at some brewery equipment. And then I came back and everybody's, oh, we got this new, your wife created this new. I'm like, what did she create? (laughs) <laughs> no way. No way, but we have been selling them like and then I was scared like cause, you know I I was like gosh, I hope she doesn't charge the same price that we charge them, you know. And she she did it right. I was I was really oh tickled I was tickled to death actually. <laughs>
3: Clarence and his wife recently moved back to the neighborhood, and we talked about what it's like being back in East Atlanta Village after all these years. I used to
4: get my haircut in this building, um right. Know, right where the TV is, but I, you know, we, we left to open up funeral homes, and then we sold our biggest one and decided to move back and just do some, some things we really enjoy, so...
3: So, why was it important for you to have, uh, to open up like in your own neighborhood and East Atlanta Village and?
4: Well, I I, I worked in this neighborhood for several years at uh, Meadows Mortuary, which is a funeral home right around the corner and they, uh, so I used to walk up and down these streets every day, go to Flatiron and get something to eat and cold beer over there and uh, so we were just, we were just looking all over but when we seen this building, I'm like, you know, it had sentimental value to me. So I said, hey, Let's give it a shot and that's what we did and we got it like immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Well
3: it's beautiful. You guys have done a great job. Oh god, yeah. It's really it, it came
4: a long way.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> it came a long way. God knows it did.
3: Then we talked about his beer
4: we have different uh, styles of beer you know like we have a buckwheat which is actually made with buckwheat and, uh-huh um, our baby mama drama which is a uh ipa made with citrus mosaic hops we got a liar liar which is our oyster style uh barely legal which is a 12 uh hazy ipa and then you know we got sage on and then a couple other sour. so we just want to make sure we we don't have like. 15, 20 beers because that, we think that's just too many beers to add, especially with the size of this building. Maybe yeah. in Stone Mountain, we probably have a lot more beers, but just wanted to make focus on quality Yeah. And, uh, versus quality.
3: And everything's brewed here. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. awesome. Right,
4: right there. Hey, guys, how's everybody doing?
3: <laughs> then he opened the doors and took me on a tour.
4: This is our brew house uh, here. Oh, wow. So it's very small three-barrel unit is conducive of our needs uh, here because we don't have much room to put anything. You but it does a job. It's a totally automated system and it, it, it runs. She, she makes good beer. Here we're making a pineapple habanero hazy IPA and then here we're doing a pineapple baby mama. And then this is our sour tank and then the tank beside that, we're doing a, a saison. So it's, and yeah, not everything, but. That, we have
3: the, new, new things all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah we're
4: trying to switch it out. We keep the baby mama, but yeah. everything else, we kind of like, you know, keep moving it in and out, make some creative things, you know.
3: Yeah. Pineapple habanero sounds delicious.
4: Oh, it's gonna be great. <laughs> be ready, Saturday. <laughs> awesome.
3: According to the Georgia Craft, Brewers Guild. Mm-hmm. This is the first black-owned brick-and-mortar
5: brewery.
4: It's technically the first owned black-owned brewery, period. Yeah. Not because, it? you yeah. know, breweries can't be people, you know? Well, that's true. So, that's so it's, true. It's, it's, it's the first African-American-owned brewery in the whole state.
3: In the whole state. That. Well, what, is, what does that mean to you? What, is that, what do you think Well,
4: I mean, that? Th- that wasn't the reason we did it. We didn't even know about that. <laughs> you know, I, we just wanted to open a brewery and an oyster bar and... Uh, But when uh, we found out, I mean, of course it it was, it was very powerful to us uh, because you, now you're getting that kind of recognition for creating history, you know, and especially here in Atlanta, like, you know, I I did not, any African-American owned breweries, when, you know, (laughs) nothing but (laughs) African-Americans. For the most part, you know, but, you know, so we're glad to have that title though. And we'll wear it very well. And um, that was another key to us expanding more and more. So we want to take this brand to the next level. We don't want to just focus on um, just being this small oyster bar. Uh, We want to be big where, you know, we're in Publix, Kroger's, liquor stores, you know, a lot of the restaurants. Not just in Georgia, but like you know, in the United States, and we think we can make that happen because our, our business is so unique. Not only just it, it's, it's a great beer, you know, but it's not many. One percent of all the brewers in the country are owned by African Americans. So I don't even think it's one percent. You know, yeah. I, I think it's like only like thirteen of us wow. that actually own facilities that we we brew beer on, on premise. So. That makes our business really unique, you know, just because we're the manufacturers of our own product and they're not, you know, you don't go to stores or look at stores and see beer that's made by African-Americans, which is sad, but I think it's very important for us to encourage, to help encourage people more about craft beer, you know, not just black, but, you know, all the way around. And
3: that's and Hops, East Atlanta's first and only Oyster Bar, and Craft Brewery.
2: Hippin' Hops owner Clarence Boston speaking with City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Knavey in July of 2021. The brewery's newest location is set to open in Stone Mountain next month. Coming up, we'll explore the emotional depth of primates with Behind Glass, a photography book from Ann Barry. Amplifying at Latin, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Curator and critic Jerry Cullum writes that photographer Ann Barry's art is deployed in the documenting of an already profound encounter. Those encounters depict primates conveying a surprise surprising range of facial expressions and depth of emotion. The artwork appears in a new book, Behind Glass, a collection of photos by Anne Berry. She joins us now via Zoom with the designer of the book, Lori Schock. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: and what led you to begin photographing primates in 2010?
5: I was traveling with my husband in Europe and I was looking for something to photograph and I started going to zoos because that was a, well, I've always loved animals, first of all, and I like to look at animals and and it was a place that I could go with public transportation and also there are always good directions to zoos and I I don't have a good sense of direction. So I would go to the zoo and then you know very shortly I realized that the most captivating thing in the zoo were the primates because they're so much like us. So I started going to different primate houses and when I would go on a trip with Will I would And I would say, well, let's stay another week. And I would target some zoos that had
2: primates in them. There are many city zoos represented here from Central and Western Europe. How did you decide which zoos to include in the book?
5: Well, some of it just happened to be where I could go, where, where Will was going for work. And then then I would try to say, okay, well, if we're going to be in Dusseldorf, you know, I can get to Cologne. I can get on the train and go to Cologne or Wuppertal or Krefeld in less than an hour. So that was an easy one. But then I would, then after every trip, I might say, okay, could we just go over here? You know, so I would read about the zoos on some of the chats and the internet helped a lot with that.
2: Is Atlanta the only U.S. zoo where you photographed?
5: It pretty much is. I've been to some other zoos. I've been to the Portland Zoo in Oregon and I've been to the zoo in St. Louis. But even the Atlanta Zoo, it's hard to get photographs because. Our zoos, we don't have as many, and they're bigger, but they're also a lot more crowded. Where in Europe, small towns have zoos, and people are go there all the time. So that and during the week, I would usually be the only person in the monkey house, <laughs> and that would never happen in Atlanta, even during the week.
2: When did you realize that the primates were posing for you? Hmm.
5: Well, I, I mean, I. It, it's clear that they are sometimes, and the one thing that I realized is how, how much they were, is this very small zoo in Krefeld, Germany. I was taking pictures, and a lady was in there sketching, and she realized that I also was staying in the exhibit. And she came over, and, and she spoke a little English, and she said, I want to introduce you to my favorite chimpanzee. And she walked me up to this big window and the chimpanzee was across the room and he looked up and he came over to the window and she said, This woman has come from the United States and she wants to take your picture. Well, he ran and got this large metal screw and came back and sat down in front of me holding his screw. You know, and then when I finished taking his picture, he went and hit it again.
2: Oh goodness. Now that is Charlie, yeah. uh, who yeah. is number 31, his photo. Uh, was he working on something with that screw?
5: No, it was just a precious object to him. And I guess he hid it to keep it away from the other chimpanzees. And also, he, he might have realized he was not supposed to have it. And that's
2: <laughs> <him>. <laughs> well, how do your portraits? Reveal the distinct personalities of each subject.
5: Each type of primate you know, has a, a different type of personality, I think. In a, and you can really see in the apes, you know, that they all have their own personality and their own facial features. And you can tell them apart. I think the smaller monkeys, it's harder to tell. And I also get a lot of people saying, oh, uh, that monkey's so sad, which is not actually true. They just don't have the muscles. that A smile to a primate is not like a smile to us.
2: Oh, interesting.
5: I just be curious rather than, you know, they're usually looking at me and it's not that they're sad and trying to get out of the enclosure. They're just, they're liking to interact with me and they're curious.
2: No, and- You have a foreword from the critic, curator, and writer, Jerry Cullum, whom I mentioned. You also have an opening statement from the godmother of primates, Jane Goodall, and a very impressive essay from Dr. Joe Satchel. Did you know a lot about primates before you began your work?
5: I did not. I know a lot about horses, but I did not, I've learned a lot about primates. I didn't know the different species. And and so whenever I went to a zoo that had certain types of primates, I would go home and research their habitats and what was threatening them and and just more about the personalities of the primates. Mm. So I, I have learned a lot doing this project.
2: Lori, you are the producer and designer of Behind Glass. What does your work entail?
0: Well, when I begin a book, any book, it's about getting to know the artist and the author first and what body of work they want to reveal to their audience. And so Anne and I met years ago, actually, when I was teaching a publishing workshop at Serenby. And that was when I first got to see these portraits, these amazing portraits of the primates. And when Anne decided to publish a book, we sat down and talked about how to present the work. So the first thing is, in her case, we wanted to create a quiet and intimate experience for the reader, similar to her one-on-one meetings with the you know the primates. We wanted a reader to be able to really experience that each and every image without competition. So that's why there's one image on each spread so that you really have time to to sit and get to know as much as you can, the personalities of each primate. So it's really about helping to realize the vision of the author or
2: the artist, or both. Because the average reader or viewer is not aware of this. We just see a beautifully produced book and I guess too often do not stop to realize what it takes to do that. Would either of you talk about Primate diversity, that's touched upon in one of the essays. I guess it was in the essay by Dr. Satchel. She spoke about how many different countries they're from. Mm-hmm.
5: I think when you talk about primate diversity, and, and you should consider the endangerment and that, that some of these primates are critically endangered, and there won't be so much diversity. And once we get where there's not a lot of diversity, you know, this whole, every, all the living things in this world interconnect with each other. And when we lose a lot of that diversity, it's going to hurt the human. It's going to, we're going to
2: lose our own. We spoke about Charlie holding the screw that he... So cherishes let's talk about a few more photos boma signing number forty two What is boma conveying in sign language
5: i I don't know exactly what she's saying, but but I felt it was interesting, so that is in the same zoo with Charlie that small zoo had three gorillas who have been there for since uh, they were all in their 40s and it was a male and two females and she's one of the females she was the alpha female in that group and just it was interesting the interaction between them it's one of those old-fashioned exhibits that's a painted room but the zoo you know zoos are trying now to do more than just display animals they're trying to get you know also be a, a voice for extinction and for and they try to find the what the animal needs but this zoo made an outdoor exhibit they had just lived there so long they didn't want to go outside so now the zoo would be tasked with just keeping these primates until you know for their lifetime these primates had been these gorillas had been taken from africa but you would never do that now but you still have to take care of them as long as they're going to live But so they would just come and there were certain people that came every day to that little zoo that they would interact with. Hmm.
2: It's so sad to hear that they didn't want to go outside. I know a great deal has been written about zoos, comparing them to prisons. Was that some of what you were getting at with this book?
5: I don't think so. So there have been some, some nice photography books done that show the enclosures of the zoo and that you maybe get that feeling from. But with me, I was trying to focus on the personality or the portrait and, of the animal. So you don't see the zoo. You can't say they're in the window. You can't see whether or not they have a gorgeous outdoor enclosure or not. And, but I wanted to focus on the beauty of the animal and maybe that you look at it and get a, feel a relationship with it and some empathy for it. And then maybe you would go and say, oh, well, that crested macaque that has his hand on the window. And when I read about them, they're just extremely endangered in their habitat. So for people that, that say, how do you know that? I don't like to look at this because I don't like zoos. I would like to say, well, I, Hope you are doing something about animals in the wild because the wild is shrinking till there's basically not any wild left.
2: Mm-hmm. Number 19, the photo of Persephone breaks my heart. It appears as though she's enclosed or, or trapped inside a glass globe. Would you describe this photo? And what you believe she was telling you?
5: Yes. Okay. So first of all, that photo is a a few of the photos are montages where I wanted to add something. A montage is a picture on top of a picture where I maybe wanted to add something to give the the primate a little bit of a story, a narrative. And so that's one of those little bubbles that kids pop up in. And it was for looking at penguins. That's also an example of one of those primates where she, those colobus monkeys have a natural look where it looks like they're sad or frowning, but she's really just curious. So it's to me, she looks like she's just popping up, looking around at the, they're, they're looking at the people like we're looking at them and, and all the animals in the zoo, if people don't go to the zoo, they get depressed. If something happens like in New Orleans with the flood and in Ukraine right now, there's a gorilla in in the Ukraine zoo in Kiev. He's very depressed.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear you say at least that the sad expressions are not necessarily reflecting the primate's emotions because while several of the animals in this book have intelligent thoughtful expressions, very few appear to be happy. And I'm wondering about the level of contentment you observed among the primates you photographed.
5: Usually they seem content and they have things in a zoo. They're less stressed than they would be in the wild because the zoos are giving them some a place for some privacy, some food, some some things to play with and you know just all the things that a primate needs to, to have a good life in the wild they're trying to give them in the zoo and especially the small monkeys like that monkey the colobus monkey if they have a nice outdoor enclosure too they probably are less stressed than they would be in their natural habitat now the uh, the bigger an animal is the more space it needs and it is sad that they you know that that they can't have enough space, but they don't have that in Africa either. But, you know, they might be in a sanctuary, but, and it's got high walls around it and it's, people are riding around in um, land rovers with walkie-talkies, you know, following them around.
2: Hmm. Lori, this may pertain to you. I've been giving numbers referencing the order of the photos. Is that The decision of the producer and designer as well, how to set up the order of the photos?
0: It's a typical approach to produce photo books where you number the plates. You won't always find it in every photography book or fine art museum book, but it is an approach, and I like it. It does two things. It first, helps you relate back to the image without even having page numbers when you want to add caption material in the back of the book or additional information it also can mimic an exhibition in a gallery where the reader instead of being in a gallery looking at these images is kind of like holding a photo exhibit in their hands and so I really liked using that for Anne's book.
2: But is there any sort of narrative or underlying story you're trying to convey with the order in which the photos appear?
0: Yes. Whenever you have a collection of images, you think about how to sequence those images. So you're creating a visual narrative you know, what I first do is I'll take all of the images and I print them all out and I lay them down on the floor and I start looking for similarities. The use of their hands or in talking about Anne's book, the use of the primate's hands, where their eyes are looking, shapes, negative and positive space within each image. And then I try creating a visual narrative where one image will automatically lead into another through some look or shape. So I spent some time doing that to create a sequence. And when you're doing all of this, you don't want necessarily for the reader to understand what's going on behind the scenes. It's like one big puzzle, it's one big production. And if you design it and produce it in an effective way, then the reader doesn't really understand what's going on. They're just having an experience that's cohesive and communicates what you hope to communicate.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. The placement of 49, Estelle's photo near the end of the book, is quite moving. She appears to be deep in thought, if not looking up at the heavens. What does her pose reveal? Well,
0: you're right. Like looking up into the heavens and it's reflective. And I would hope that it's kind of like reflecting on this collective experience of relationships. And that a reader might actually have kind of a similar unconscious parallel feeling of what they've just experienced, and that it's making them think a little bit deeper about primates and our responsibility to them.
2: I was hoping you would touch upon that, each of you, if you want to. In Dr. Jo Satchel's essay, she offers solutions to prevent the extinction of primates. How does the conservation of primates relate to the environmental issues, crises that we face as humans?
5: Yes, it relates because if when everything goes extinct, then we will be next. And that is one function that zoos have is because it's education and empathy are the only things that are going to make people want to protect these animals. If they don't know they they exist, they're not going to be trying to help. In a way, it's like these species, these animals that are in the zoo are ambassadors for the rest of their species.
2: Hmm. So what is the impact you hope this book will have upon readers and viewers? Well, I
5: hope that it makes them consider the environment and conservation and makes them maybe want to get involved in a conservation effort or do something. Even every little thing somebody does can help. So, you know, that's what I feel like. I can't do anything. I'm not in a position to do anything major, but if you try to live your life where you do small things, then it helps. And I also try to use this book, You know, I'm totally open and always looking for other projects that where I can use it as a fundraiser for them. So I'm working with Project Chimps, which is a sanctuary for chimpanzees that have been released from biomed experiments. But they still are stuck in the lab until somebody makes a place where they can go. And this um, beautiful piece of property in North Georgia has taken about I think they have about 70 chimpanzees now but there's still about that many more left in the lab in Louisiana that are waiting for them to be able to add on to their facility so that they can go to this because and chimpanzees like are social they like to live in groups so they would be able to go and live in groups and go outside I go take some pictures for them and and if they want to have an event and use my book as a as a fundraiser, along with a photograph of one of their chimpanzees. And I'd like to work with some other foundations in that same way.
2: Photographer Ann Berry and book designer Lori Schock. More information about the photography book Behind Glass is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., renowned artist Genevieve Gagnard tells us about the new digital art installation on Marietta Street. Look at them, look at us. Plus, our series Speaking of Music will feature the artist... Nova. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.orgslash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS, R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air.
5: We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from W-H-Y-Y and N-P-R.